Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the March 2008 edition of the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Richard Sennett about the art of craftsmanship. It's true in sports, too. You remember when you first learned um, how, to, how to shoot a basketball or, or hit back a, a tennis ball? The idea was rather mechanical about what you were doing. As you got better at it, you began to see that you could you know, you could find varied solutions to the problem of hitting the ball or getting it in the net. And uh, it's that opening up of, of skill uh, so that it's not just about problem solving, but it's also about problem finding, exploring alternatives, and so on, uh, which is a really uh, important part of, of developing oneself and Gus Speth about how the free market system will need to adjust in the face of serious environmental changes. Well, what is fundamentally flawed is the free market, uh, which has no mechanism whatsoever for getting the prices correct on environmental values. Uh, and, it's, um, and, and for that reason, the economy is fundamentally sort of out of control because it runs on signals, uh, which prices are the main ones. And when prices are as out of whack uh, in terms of re- reflecting environmental values as today's prices are, uh, then the, this huge machine is running without the most basic uh, controls. Stay tuned. What is the state of craftsmanship in the 21st century? Is it, to quote Hamlet, more honored in the breach than in the observance? In his new book, The Craftsman, Richard Sennett examines not only the state of craftsmanship, but the art of craftsmanship itself. Richard Sennett is professor of sociology at New York University and the London School of Economics. His previous book, The Culture of New Capitalism, was published by Yale University Press in 2006. Richard Sennett, thanks for taking time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today. The first thing that comes to my mind when I think of craftsmanship is really how hard it must be to maintain against the economic pressures of the market system to get something out as low as cost as possible. Have craftsmen and women reacted to this pressure in different ways throughout history? Uh, they have. Um, and depending on what the, the craft was, um, they would react uh, in, in, in ways that suited what they were, were doing. I should say that uh, when we think about a craft today, we think about only, um, uh, or t- might only think about, uh, you know, manual labor. And in fact, if you define a craft more more largely as learning to do a s- something with skill and really wanting to do it well, uh, you expand the territory of of what we think about about the craftsmanship to include uh, people who you know work with uh, who are programmers who work with electronic things, 
nurses, doctors, lawyers, um, you know, anybody who wants to really get something right because they want to do a good job uh, has um, uh, is motivated by craftsmanship. Uh, that said, in the old days, uh, that is before the 18th century, when people thought about craftsmanship, they thought mostly uh, about artisans, manual labor. And their problem uh, was that they were uh, organized into guilds, and these guilds were constantly under pressure from rogue craftsmen, uh, people who were not part of the guild system, you know, sort of working on their own. This is a problem for leather workers, for instance. Or they were menaced by people who did very good quality work uh, uh, in faraway places. This was one of the, in the Renaissance, one of the great uh, problems with the expansion of international trade, um, that uh, goods started coming into Western Europe uh, that were of very good quality um, uh, around the Mediterranean basin, for instance, um, uh, cloth, some kinds of grains, and so on, uh, that bakers in France or, or in Germany couldn't really uh, control. The, the market was sort of beginning to be flooded with what we would think of as foreign goods, but they weren't cheap foreign goods. They were often exotic or, you know, intriguing or well-made. So in those days, the threat was uh, more market-centered in that, in that sense. The guilds couldn't really control uh, the production process. In our time, the threats, I think, have become a little more subtle, which is it's possible uh, to make a lot of money by producing schlock products. Uh, it isn't true that people uh, pay for quality always. Um, and this is true of physical objects. It's also true if you think about computer programs uh, that, uh, I don't, without mentioning any names, um, that a lot of the, the software that we use is of very poor quality. So that's a you know that's a that's a modulation in in the market but what i've studied in this book is the way in which uh, firms themselves often uh, defeat people from developing skill or using their skills in a way that where they're really committed to doing a good good job they overemphasize competition for instance or they move people around from job to job and, uh, so that people's skills don't bed in. Um, so that the threats we know are, 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 are more complicated, you know, than, than people knew in the past. Uh, we can have very profitable businesses in which uh, the people working in them can feel uh, that they're really not um, doing their best. They're not called on to do their to do their best. American auto industry is a great example of that. It's, um, it's very poorly organized to help workers really, you know, 
do their best and 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 feel a sense of pride and, and craft in what in in what they're doing. So that's the kind of problem I I've tried to understand in this book. Uh, how could we how could we avoid these problems? How could we allow people really to develop their skill to become more skilled? And you know what kinds of social changes would that require? We've been talking about craftsmanship uh, in an aggregate, but the book very much focuses on craftsmanship in, as an individual, I want to say, path of life. And one of the things right. I found really interesting is, you know, when one thinks generally of mastery of a certain subject. It might come back to that's a value-neutral proposition. Either you can or you cannot complete a task. But I thought it was interesting that you talked about at a certain level of mastery, a craftsman no longer moves off a value-neutral thing and begins to fo- begins to confront ethical issues. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, oftentimes when we think about doing a good job, we we think just as you say, you know, about getting getting it done, um, about the procedure for completing something, and. That's true, pretty simple skills. Um, when you get a little more skilled, when you get a little more mastery, you can be a little more experimental. And in scientific laboratories, for instance, a good lab is one in which people are doing problem solving, but they're also doing problem finding. And that capacity to sort of experiment, to notice curious things, uh, to ponder um, um, wrong answers, which are oftentimes more illuminating and fruitful than right answers. That requires a kind of development of a uh, high level of skill. It's true in sports, too. You remember when you first learned um, how, to, how to shoot a basketball or, or hit back a, a tennis ball, the idea was rather mechanical about what you were doing. As you got better at it, you began to see that you could, you know, you could find varied solutions to the problem of hitting the ball or getting it in the net. And uh, it's that opening up of, of skill uh, so that it's not just about problem solving, but it's also about problem finding, exploring alternatives, and so on. Uh, which is a really uh, important part of of developing oneself. Unfortunately, things like multiple choice tests, uh, the other ways that we we try and mem- measure in schools, at least how skilled people are, uh, don't give much credence to that. You know, they're all procedural. It's you know, getting the re- uh, the maximum number of right answers as fast as you. You can't, you can't dwell in a problem. But a good craftsman wants to do that, wants to understand all the dimensions of difficulty, resistance, ambiguity. That's how you make discoveries. So um, what I've emphasized in the book is um, what it means to get really skilled in the sense of be able, being able to do at the same time problem solving and problem finding. Uh, managing frustration. Uh, you know, people always want to have a quick answer to something. Uh, it gives them a kind of instant sense of satisfaction. Uh, when you dwell in a problem, it's frustrating, but a good craftsman is going to stay with it to understand just what's there. And uh, what I'm saying to you is that, you know, there's nothing 
when you get really technically good at something, it's just not mechanical. You know? There are higher levels of, of, of thinking that are involved in, in skilled and simply applying a procedure, getting the right answer and going on to something, something else. And so I think it's a great pity that our educational system doesn't give much uh, credence to that. Um, so that's been a preoccupation of mine in, in the book. So that's. You asked me about this ethical. I was going to say that's a bit more the epistemology, I would say, of the craftsmen. Right. But but more like the Frankenstein question: Do do really skilled craftsmen and women get so good at their at their their skill that the questions of you know, well, should I build should I build a monster out of a corpse and bring life yeah. to it? Then kind of you know, it, they don't really look at that question anymore. It's like, can I do it as opposed to should I do it? Uh, right. Um, that's. Uh, that's very true, and I, I mean the instance I took in the in the book is a is a pretty extreme one, which is the attitude of Robert Oppenheimer in um, building the atomic bomb. Um, you remember that Oppenheimer said while he was engaged in the process of it, you know, well, it's a technical problem, really sweet technical problem, and let's solve it first, and then we'll think about what it means. Uh, when he was actually on the test range, and the bomb actually went off, uh, he he wrote in his diary that night, "I've become the angel of death." <laughs> you know, oftentimes that kind of obsession, that kind of you know obsession with just getting into something, you know, rising the technical challenge, can put people um, out of mind about what its ethical dimensions are. And it's a real problem in craftsmanship because the reward you're getting is an intense feeling of satisfaction that you've you know, dug deep into something. And you can lose precisely because you're really in it. You're really good at it. You've really dug into it. Uh, you can lose a sense of thinking about what the consequences are going to be. Uh, and... Uh, you know, what it's going to mean for other people. This has a long history in Western culture. It's the opposition between, in Greek culture, between Hephaestus, who's the god of, uh, of craftsmen, and uh, Pandora, who's the goddess of, of wonderful objects that go wrong. You know, when the Greeks first thought about the myth of Pandora, you know, with her jar or, uh, or casket full of wonders that is when they're, you know, inventions and perfumes and uh, all that sort of thing, you know, jars and so on, that are first released in, into the world and then they become horrors. The perfume turns into plague and all of that. When the Greeks first thought about that, uh, they thought that this was a kind of, she was a malign uh, goddess, and that this was a trick of the gods that they uh, that they promised these technical wonders that turned out to be horrible. In time, the Greeks began to read this myth as something about human beings as well, that our own powers to create and invent and be masters of the material world uh, uh, make make us the poisoners of ourselves, that, the, that it was a, Pandora became a kind of 
myth about human um, self-destruction through seeking to do things really well. Hephaestus, on the other hand, was seen as the god of civilization, that it was craftsmanship and craft works that rescued the Greeks from being hunter-gatherers, allowed them to, to live in cities, to share with each other, to share knowledge with each other, and so on. And, you know, it's a very fundamental tension. There's a, just if I can just say one more thing about it. What's interesting about uh, them is that uh, these two symbolic forces is that um, uh, Pandora was taken to be one of the most beautiful of all the goddesses, and the things that she released when people first saw them were taken to be very beautiful. That is, that they were things of perfection. Um, whereas his Festus was lame, which to the Greeks was uh, a sign of real ugliness. And the fact that he is a god of craftsmen trying to do good work is he stands over a realm in which people are not trying to get things perfect, not trying to make something absolute, but just get better and better at what they do. He's, his humanity, his civilizing humanity, if you like, lies in the fact that he's not proposing to people that by skill, you know, they're going to become, um, you know, that life is going, there'll be a kind of perfect form uh, that's, that's going to appear in what people make or what they do. Uh, but rather that there's a combination of trying to get better and, and yet being not beautiful, not being, being perfect. And that's also an, a contradiction in craftsmanship that craftsmen uh, have to struggle with uh, in no matter what time. Uh, the impulse to get something right the first time, to make it perfect, and the notion of craftsman, uh, craft work as a kind of narrative in which there isn't a kind of perfect end, you know, a sublime denouement. And in my book, I'm all on the side of Hephaestus. I think that when we try and make perfect objects, uh, which are closed, which are uh, into themselves, that those kinds of objects are the ones that do us harm, and that that spirit does us harm. Oppenheimer himself recognized that, that he thought the bomb was needed to be exploded only once, and it was such a perfect device, uh, that uh, there would be no atom bombs thereafter. You know, there was the absolute answer to a problem. And that's, um, that's a kind of unethical form of craftsmanship, in my view. Uh, uh, the notion that I have is that, like Hephaestus, we have to always try and do things better uh, without thinking that this narrative can ever be brought to a kind of wonderful and glorious end, you know, that will finally sort things out, get it right, get the answer. The Craftsman is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Richard Sennett, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast.
scientists have been giving ever more dire warnings about the future of the planet. And in his new book, The Bridge at the Edge of the World, Capitalism, the Environment, and Crossing from Crisis to Sustainability, Gus Speth looks back at the successes and failures of the environmental movement and ahead at the economic and societal changes that will be needed to confront this oncoming crisis. Gus Speth is Dean of the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale. His previous book, Red Sky at Morning, was published by Yale University Press in 2004. Gus Speth, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Delighted. In your book, The Bridge at the Edge of the World, Capitalism, the Environment, and Crossing from Crisis to Sustainability, you point to the Union Oil oil spill in Santa Barbara in 1969 as a catalyzing event in the environmental movement of the 1970s. Why did that movement fail to realize its potential? Well, I think the environmental movement over these decades since the 1970s has done a good job in a lot of ways. Uh, There's been real progress, uh, and a lot of the things uh, have been accomplished, but... uh, in the end, uh, it's been like swimming upstream against a current that's too strong. And, and the environmental movement gets, has victories and gets more uh, larger and more sophisticated, but the environment is drifting downstream, and we're losing ground uh, fast now. Uh, and uh, I think the, 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 the problem is fundamentally uh, that what started out on the right direction, uh, our environmental movement uh, didn't adjust to radically changed circumstances and, uh, and didn't go deeper uh, into what the real problems are. And as a result, uh, has never really achieved a decisive transition to sustainability. Uh, let me explain that a bit. I think the, uh, in the early days, uh, it was entirely appropriate to adopt uh, a uh, working within the system, uh, litigating, uh, urging legislation on the Congress, uh, working to implement legislation, uh, and uh, and that was the basic approach that um, that was taken. Uh, but uh, pretty soon the opposition grew quite strong, and the problems multiplied. And instead of changing course and doing other things that now badly need doing, the environmental movement kept with the original plan. And um, as a result, uh, things are not in good shape today at all. Uh, We're on the verge of of losing the big big game. We we, we could easily find ourselves uh, approaching a, a situation where uh, we're on the edge of ruining the planet for, I would say, our grandchildren. Uh, and so we, the, the movement didn't adjust. Uh, it could have gone deeper. It should have looked deeper at, at what was driving the changes. And, uh, and it should have gotten more political and gone outside of the system and sought to change that system rather than always working within it. That was the question I was going to ask. Was it a was it a question of not changing tactics, or was it a question of focusing on the wrong issues? Well, what happened initially was that there was some great successes, uh, successes like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act in the U.S. and building the wilderness system in the U.S. These were real and substantial uh, achievements and accomplishments, but they sort of left the environmental movement with the impression that those were. Uh, the types of measures and the types of initiatives that would, in the end, uh, carry the day. Uh, 
And in my judgment, they're not. Uh, the types of issues, the types of things that we should have moved on to in, involve uh, a deeper challenge to uh, our uh, uh, consumption, uh, our hyperventilating consumption patterns, uh, to uh, question uh, our growth at all cost mentality uh, that we have and policy of our, of our government and uh, to challenge the power of, of the corporate sector, uh, which is now not only ruling the economy but ruling our politics, uh, to go after issues like political reform, to form alliances with uh, others of who share the environmental community's fate uh, in the end, uh, and, and uh, other causes uh, such as uh, social justice issues in our country. Uh, these were causes, uh, and, and to become more political fundamentally, uh, not just to be uh, basically uh, a lobbying and litigating outfit, but a group that took its cause to the people. And the environmental community has never been good at any of those things uh, on that list, and it has never made a successful transition uh, to deal uh, with these issues. So what I'm hearing you arguing is that perhaps it would have been more effective, and this is one of the things I got from your book, for the movement to look at more of, say, a bottom-up as opposed to a top-down strategy and uh, bringing environmental consciousness to bear. Instead, it's just, so working with smaller political groups instead of starting at the federal government and going down. Well, I think it requires both, but it's been the environmental community has been too much uh, inside the beltway, and more recently in the state capitals. But the state capitals are getting closer to where we need to be, uh, which is really um, uh, in you know out there mobilizing uh, people into a political movement in our country. And in that sense, yes, a bottom-up force. I mean, we desperately need uh, a huge grassroots uh, movement of concerned citizens uh, in the country today, uh, and 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 just having our national environmental organizations uh, working in Washington primarily uh, is not enough. Beyond the discussion of the political and a raising of social consciousness, which we'll talk about in a little bit, a large part of your book looks at the economic system, particularly free market capitalism in the United States. And I was wondering about the price mechanism. You talk a little bit about how uh, the externalities that corporations are able to pass off to the consumers don't really price the environment properly. So I wanted to know, do you think it's just the price mechanism itself is fundamentally flawed and it shouldn't that shouldn't be used to value the environment or was has it just been compromised by co the corporation's use of it? Well, what is fundamentally flawed is the free market, uh, which has no mechanism whatsoever for getting the prices correct on environmental values, uh, and it's um, and, and for that reason, the economy is fundamentally sort of out of control because it runs on signals, uh, which prices are the main ones, and when prices are as out of whack uh, in terms of re reflecting environmental values as today's prices are. Uh, then the, this huge machine is running without the most basic uh, controls, and it is out of control in an environmental sense. And I think that's, that's what we have today. Uh, prices can be an amazingly powerful tool for uh, 
environmental protection, uh, but it requires the government to step in and uh, impose costs uh, on manufacturers, for example, now any environmental despoiler, so that the prices of those activities go up dramatically. Um, so I think that that, uh, sure, the uh, price mechanism, if it's proper, properly orchestrated, uh, is a huge part uh, of the answer. And that's really what I was trying to get a sense of. Is that if, if there were no, of course it's speculation, if there were no economic agents within the government or in society keeping those prices artificially low, then, then you might be okay with the price mechanism perhaps helping the environment as opposed to harming it. No, well, I don't, I mean, I don't, no, I mean, there's not, it's not a question of uh, if there is no government, the prices will be terribly wrong. Uh, that's the nature of the beast. Uh, and, uh, and if you want to see sort of an unconstrained uh, market operation with horrendous environmental consequences, uh, look at China today. Um, so I think... Um, uh, what it, you know, there's a different issue which sometimes gets confused with the issue that I've been describing, and, and that is um, the problem of putting monetary value on all types of environmental uh, concerns and impacts uh, and resources. And I think that's very, very difficult. But that's a different issue because there are ways to make destroying the environment very expensive uh, without putting a monetary value when they're trying to say that uh, health is worth so much or uh, the north slope of Alaska is worth so much. There's a focus in your book on people looking at other measures of the health of a society other than gro- than economic growth, uh, which you talk to a degree about the fetishization of economic growth as being kind of the all-consuming ideal and the yardstick that governments and to a large extent large chunks of the media use to measure society's health. What other measurements would you use? Well, the, because uh, the, you know, the principal measure that we have today for uh, determining how well off we are is gross domestic product, GDP, and on an individual basis is GDP per capita, and these are these numbers are trotted out endlessly, and including now as we look in the teeth of a possible recession. Uh, and the problem with those numbers is that everybody who knows them knows that they are simply terrible at uh, measuring real welfare, even real economic welfare. And so the first sort of set of proposals for changing them is to reform the national income accounts so that they really do measure uh, economic welfare of people. Uh, and, and you could do that. And there have been some very serious uh, exercises to that end. In the U.S., we have what's called the Genuine Progress Indicator, which measures every year uh, or you know, takes a revision of, of GDP, which actually looks at that portion of it or, or uh, that redounds to the welfare of the public. And um, and when one does that, one finds that we really haven't been growing all that much uh, on a per capita basis. Uh, so, in real economic welfare, sustainable economic welfare, has not been increasing nearly as much as uh, GDP has has been. But there are also very interesting measures of uh, well-being that don't try to 
put a dollar value on well-being at all and in fact go to people and ask them uh, for their own perception of how well off they are and psychologists today are advocating a, a new system of accounts that's not based on the dollar but is based on uh, people's own subjective sense in a variety of ways uh, of how their lives are and whether they feel successful about their lives uh, satisfied about their lives and you can correlate that with a lot of other things uh, like genuine happiness and uh, and and on the, on the other side uh, uh, unhappiness mental disorders depression anxiety levels in society and, and other things so psychologists are trying to lead us to look at things that are other than the economic measures of well-being they would argue that in the early days, the economic measures made sense, but today there's very, very poor correlation between economic progress and, and real progress in people's well-being. The Bridge at the Edge of the World, Capitalism, the Environment, and Crossing from Crisis to Sustainability is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Gus Speth, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. You know, a lot of interesting things have happened in the month of March. Julius Caesar was killed. Both Wales and Ireland celebrate their patron saints. And in Florida and Arizona, baseball players get loosened up for the first games of a new season. So, why not celebrate the memories of Caesar, Saints David and Patrick, and the beginning of a new baseball season by stopping by the Yale Press website and picking up one of our books on sale. Just go to www.yalebooks.com, look for the sale banner, and welcome the new season right. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondak. I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.